Welcome to the Elk Talk Podcast with Randy Newberg and Corey Jacobson. Presented by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. The goal is what little you and I know about elk hunting, we share with people. I've got an elk building, it's like 120 yards away, what do I do? First off, the thought would never cross my mind when an elk being 120 yards away to call anybody <laughs> on a cell phone. <laughs> All elk. All the time. Only elk. Only elk. Well, it's us having conversations. So we usually go down some rabbit holes. But if you hunt with Corey Jacobson, you will find the landscape is full of rabbit holes. We're just going to make this up as we go. And you look at it like, oh, that's a target-rich environment. But if you're trying to single one out, a solo target there is much easier to go into than a, a big group. We record everything, so there's no BS and no lying, no faking it with us. <laughs> Did we hit the record I button? I forgot to hit the record <laughs> button. If you want to know something about elk hunting, this probably isn't the podcast to listen to. <laughs> Should we give them a list of all the other podcasts wow. where they might learn something? <laughs> The Elk Talk Podcast is brought to you by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, ensuring the future of elk, other wildlife, their habitat, and our hunting heritage. To become a member, go to rmef.org. And the podcast is also brought to you by OnX Maps. And with OnX Maps, you can know where you stand with the most accurate hunting GPS tech on the market with land ownership maps that work offline. Go to onxmaps.com and use promo code ELKTALK and you're going to save 20% when you sign up for an app membership at onxmaps.com. The podcast is also brought to you by Gerber. Uh, go to gerbergear.com and learn about the knives, the vital, the big game vital, the Gator Premium, all the things that we use when we're out in the woods and not just knives, but also some really cool multi-tools that they have. We're also proud to partner with Sitka Gear, and if you go to sitkagear.com, you'll see their full line of clothing, and their tagline is turning clothing into gear, and they are doing that through advanced technology that allows you to stay in the field longer, hunt harder, and stay safer. The Elk Talk Podcast is also brought to you by GoHunt.com. Uh, go to GoHunt.com and sign up for the Insider. Um, the, the insider is changing how haunts and hunting information are found. No doubt about that. Use promo code ELKTALK, and when you do, when you sign up for the insider, you're going to get $50 of store credit, mad money, in their gear shop. And we are also brought to you by Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls. And Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls is the original designer and inventor of the pallet plate diaphragm that's completely changed the way elk calls are made and used. And to find out more and to order your elk calls, go to RockyMountainHuntingCalls.com or BuglingBull.com and use promo code ELKTALK and you're going to save 15% on all of your elk calls and elk call accessories. And with that, Corey... We are ready to get into it. Let's jump into it. Morning, Corey. Good morning. It's actually, uh, we're just afternoon here. Yeah, oh, that's right. Yeah, see, I, I obviously haven't had enough coffee this morning. <laughs> well, it's, uh, it's that time of year when mornings and afternoons kind of all run together. So, Yeah, well, and the next few days are the Christmas period. Uh, this is December 23rd, 23rd while we're recording this and I'm picking my mom up at the airport 
here in about three hours. And do you ever have this pressure that when your mom's coming to your house, everything's got to be absolutely spick and span and clean or your mother-in-law or somebody? I don't. Clean freak. (laughs) I've been up nonstop working on on my house because my wife had carpal tunnel surgery on Friday. So usually we tag team this cleaning stuff. But it's been all me, so I look yeah. like Cinderella right now. I'm running around <laughs> here with a dust mop, and I'm not painting a very good picture of an elk hunter, am I? You're not, and you're not. Uh, you're not following through on your own advice. But I know. You know. I guess you do have to make exceptions when your wife has surgery. You do have yeah. to help out around the house then. Yeah, but I have had time to go scan a few of our uh, elk talk podcast comments. Where you forward those to me? Where do yeah. Where do those come from? Just off our website. So folks can go to the website at elktalkpodcast.com and just in the contact form, send us their questions. And every once in a while, we get a chance to read through them and have a day like today where we can just sit down and answer some of them. Yeah. Well, I was down in Arizona hunting coos deer and I started scanning through a bunch of them. There's a lot of them. Yeah. Those people must think we know what we're talking about because they ask a lot of, a lot of tough questions. <laughs> Maybe they just copy and paste their questions and they go to like 30 different websites. And oh. if that's the case, they're going to find out how little we really know because they probably got real answers from someone else. <laughs> uh, well, I went through some of them and I kind of formulated a bunch of them into three or four kind of i'll call it basic questions but they they all have variations to it and i think if we jump into it and answer them that hopefully we'll cover what the people were looking for when they asked these types of questions and uh that if you're up for that yeah I, I think we'd uh we'd figure out uh how we do this there's one about uh Applying for tags, allocating budgets, and saving costs. Um, Perfect. We're talking about budgeting money for hunting two days before Christmas. That's (laughs) perfect. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Hopefully you asked your significant other for hunting tag money for Christmas. (laughs) Yeah. The number of times when I first started applying in multiple states where I tell my wife, you know, you don't have to buy me anything for Christmas. I just did a Colorado application, or I will do a Colorado application, or whatever it was. And she would look at me like, "You serious?" I'm like, "Yeah, I'm serious." <laughs> cool. Save me the headache. Um, <clears throat> uh, the other one is people want to know about when you're planning hunts in certain seasons, pre-rut, peak rut, whatever, post-rut. Um, what do you focus on? What's your top priority when planning? Uh, some questions about how would you approach certain things as a weekend warrior? Um, so yeah, let's see what else. Oh, calling late season and post rut about calling or not calling. Which one of those would you want to start with? Oh man, let's start with money. <laughs> money. Let's come out of the game. <laughs> let's, talk, let's talk about budget. Okay, I'll I'll paraphrase the question. I wrote it down. Jay, I think he, if I remember right, said he lives in Missouri and he's been out elk hunting and he's now full blown addict. 
Uh, and in his household budget, he said, we have allocated $1,000 per year for tags and licenses. My wife comes with on these trips. She enjoys being in the outdoors, so we don't count the trip costs as part of this hunting budget since we share this jointly. Another with that background, that's a great cost savings tip right there. Yeah, bring your bring your, your wife, wife with you, and then you can allocate part of the family vacation fund to the hunting fund. Yeah, like or it. bring your husband with, yeah. whatever it might be. I like it. Yeah. Well, it sounds like Jay's already ahead of the game here for most people. Yeah, he's got a thousand dollars to spend on license and tags. That's that's great. Yeah. So he said, with that background, where would you spend this one thousand dollars each year for both a long term and short term plan to hunt elk every year? Mm. Um, so he's I'd almost he's not just looking at spending a thousand dollars on license and tag. Then he's he's making a plan with a thousand dollars a year that would include future trips as well. Yep. That's great. That's what it sounds like. Perfect. So, hmm. I've got my ideas. <laughs> you want mine, or, what, or you want to give? Well, I would imagine since we went through you know each of the states in detail at the beginning of 2019, and I'm I'm sure we'll go through them again for this year. But I think you and I are probably pretty similar on what we're going to say as far as the states that are the best bang for the buck for long term, and then the states that are most accessible for short term. So you go ahead and you yeah. list what you have in mind, and I'm guessing I'm going to be right there with you. Yeah. So <clears throat> one thing he didn't say is whether he was a rifle, primarily a rifle hunter or archery hunter, because that, that would change my ideas. Yeah of what I'd tell somebody. Um, and the reason being one of the possibilities is, and it's not the number one possibility. My, my, I, I wonder if I should almost start from the bottom and work my way up, reverse engineer. This is to his point that he wants to hunt elk every year for less than a thousand dollars of license and tag fees, depending on where he lives, he lives in Missouri, so he's not that far from Colorado. So I would say plan on Colorado being your fallback no matter what. Yeah, you can go every year. You can get a tag there. What License and tags, it's under $700, right? Yep, yep exactly. Six, six, and so, or something. Yeah, so that would kind of be the way to answer the you and your wife get to have a trip out west every year. Um, but let's say he lived in Washington or California or Oregon or Nevada. I would say Idaho is that yep. go hunting every year option. Yep. And it's under $600, at least for right now. It's on the, it's on the table to discuss, uh, increasing non-resident fees as well as maybe limiting some non-resident opportunity. But I, yeah. I don't think in the near-term future we're going to see any major changes that would change this conversation at all okay so if depending on where they lived i would say pick idaho or colorado as the place where you know you're going elk hunting this year get on the ball be with it and don't wait till the last minute 
and know that that's something you can do. And I don't care whether it's archery or rifle. Um, they both have, uh, I, I don't know. You'd, you'd know Idaho. Is there a big difference between the quality of the archery hunt versus the quality of the rifle? Hunt? No, I think it's, it's going to be similar to anywhere that we talk, you know, there, there are going to be more people in the field during the general rifle season. Uh, you're going to have to work a little harder cause the elk are going to very quickly get pressured. Uh, the season length, you know, in Idaho, we've got a four-week season basically for archery, and then it's about a three-week season. October 15th through November 3rd is the average, and it changes. You know, every unit and zone has a little bit different seasons, and there's some later season hunts and everything. But for the most part, you're looking at four weeks for archery and just shy of three weeks for rifle. And Colorado uh, is very similar for archery. Uh, rifle season, though I think you're a little more limited on your time there. So if that's a consideration as far as calendar dates lining up, those are, at least for rifle, those are considerations. But I think, you know, for Idaho, we have, I wouldn't say quality, but we have quality opportunity. And that's for both archery and, and the rifle seasons, similar to Colorado. You know, a lot of opportunity in Colorado. And uh, I think Montana falls into that as well with the caveat being you have to draw the license there uh, as a non-resident. Yeah. Well, whether Colorado or Idaho was the safety net that I'm going hunting, let's say that took $700 by whatever it might be, application fees or whatever. If I had one of those as my fallback, I would also – somewhere along my course of events, I would apply for one of the limited entry tags. Because yeah, if you're going to hunt yeah. Idaho for sure, you have to buy the license to apply for the limited hunt in Idaho. And if you already know you're going to be hunting in Idaho that fall, buy the license early and apply for a limited tag. It's not that much more just to apply and you already have the license. Right. Colorado is a little bit different that because Idaho doesn't have a point system. Colorado has this preference point system, and it, it might be worth trying to build some points there if someday along the way you want to have a a hunt that maybe has fewer hunters in the field at that time, but it's going to cost you part yep. of your budget. So, okay, so we we spent seven hundred dollars by knowing we're going elk hunting. That gives us 300 left. Man, all sorts of options now. I would say beyond any doubt, you buy your $50 point in yep. Wyoming each year. So now that leaves us $250. And right behind that, uh, I you might get differences from some other people about thoughts on this. <laughs> um as some people might say, oh, I'd rather build points in Nevada or Utah because if I draw, I'm going to have a superb quality hunt, blah, blah, blah. And I get that, but the odds are so small. But if I had $250 left, I'd probably buy a license and apply in Arizona, and that's going to cost me about $175, and I'm going to build points there. And I'm probably also going to apply in New Mexico. And that's going to cost me the $60 license. So you got $60 in New Mexico. Well, What's New Mexico elk tag? 
the tag, depending on which one it is, is pushing about eight hundred bucks. Okay. If you so do with draw. that thousand dollar budget, if they were to draw this year, they could, they would still be within their budget. They'd go to New Mexico and they would forego Colorado or Idaho. Yeah, yep. I like it. So the point being, I guess the Jay's strategy of a thousand building a pool of a thousand dollars is a slush fund that. Not counting equipment, not counting trip costs and other stuff. He and his wife, uh, and he didn't say if she hunted. And the way it's worded is it sounds like she just likes to tag along. Um, but for one person, I guess, the answer being if you build a $1,000 pool of money over time, you can get quite a bit of, you can cover quite a few of the bases. Yeah. In Western hunting. No, and I think that you cover all of those um, different strategies because you're going to hunt every year, whether you draw New Mexico or you fall back on Idaho or Colorado. And New Mexico, you might not, they don't have points either. So you might not draw New Mexico in 15 straight years of applying, uh, but you might draw it three years in a row. Uh, And then Wyoming, you know, I think Wyoming is that middle tier state that you can draw a good hunt with three to six or seven points. Uh, I mean, obviously, as a non-resident, you have to draw the general tag there, which takes you two or three points. Um, But you can get a a good quality hunt for not much more than than what you spend on the general. Uh, And then Arizona is, you know, that's kind of the long term. That's one that you're going for to hopefully find a big bull and getting experience along the way with hunting these other states every year. Yeah. And the good part about Wyoming is you can buy that point in yeah. the later part of the year, I think July through yep. September or something like that. And back to the point where I, I brought up whether he archery hunts or rifle hunts. Um, if he was an archery hunter, I would suggest if you had the extra money to buy the preference point in Montana. So we got this goofy thing, preference points <laughs> and bonus points. It's not at all uh, confusing either. <laughs> Montana wrote the book on how to create complicated, unnecessary, overly burdensome regulations yep. for non-residents. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> well, I know the history of how we got here, but um, so I, I think it's twenty dollars for a preference point towards the general tag as a non-resident. I should know that, but since I'm not a non-resident, I, I. Uh, I don't don't pay attention. I'm just glad they simplified the process because it used to be if you applied and didn't draw, you could get 80% back or you could get a tag and you could do this. And at least now they've made it a little bit more user friendly. You only need two attorneys now to be able to get through the regulations and apply instead of the three that it used to take. (laughs) (laughs) But if Jay was not an archery hunter and was a rifle hunter, I would say that coming to Montana on a general rifle tag is not a good use of his money compared to doing the same in Idaho or possibly even Colorado. If he's an archery hunter and was coming to Montana on a general tag, I'd say, you know, that's that's a worthwhile uh, investment in your money. But we're getting to be so darn expensive here that it yeah. could blow his whole thousand budget thousand dollar budget here so yeah that's why 885 dollars i think for just just the elk license in montana yeah 
And that's, I, if people ask you, what's it cost to hunt out of state? I just, that I round it to about $750 plan on for license and tag. And, you know, it's like we talked, Idaho's less than that. Idaho's under $600. Colorado's just under $700. I think Oregon's right there about $750 for license and tag. Uh, Wyoming's, you know, for their regular tag is just over $700. And then you get into Montana at almost 900 I think Arizona is, what, 8 820, $8.30, somewhere in there. So I think you just... Yeah, by the time you add in the license, yep. yeah. So if you plan on that $750, that'll get you probably within $100 either way in most of the states that you'd want to look at. So I guess the answer we gave here does address the, I want to hunt elk every year. That's Idaho, Colorado. I want a... That's the short-term plan. And the mid-term and long-term plan would be, the mid-term would be Wyoming. The long-term would be Arizona. Yeah. And he's still within his $1,000 budget. Not too bad. Yeah. Huh. And, that, and honestly, that's those that? are going to be your biggest expenses. So, you know, Jay's coming out with his wife, and they're not counting that into their expense. But beyond that, really all you have is fuel and groceries. And if you needed any gear, but, you know, that's... Yep. Gear is, uh, I don't know. I, I think people get wrapped up on gear and they think they need to save up $3,000 to get boots and backpack and a new bow and all these different things. But the reality is if you're hunting whitetail or you're already a hunter, you've got everything you need. Yeah, there's some things that would make you more comfortable, but there, you have everything you need yep. already. So just throwing that out, you know, you, you're probably looking, I would say you could get... I, just throwing out there $300 for fuel. And again, it's going to depend on where you're coming from and where you're going to. But if you're traveling a thousand miles one way and gas is $3 a gallon, you get 20 miles a gallon, you know, you should be in that $300 round trip or so. And then groceries, you know, you can, you can, you can eat really cheap for eight or 10 days if you have to. And Yeah. I, I struggle to count groceries and food as part of my travel and and hunting budget because i eat when i'm at home it, you yeah. know to add that as part of the budget implies you don't eat when you're at home and you know, people seen videos we've done where my wife is such a great cook that i miss her cooking when i'm away from home <laughs> and so in the summertime we will make trays full of uh i say we she she kind of runs me out of the kitchen. She's like, do, do you want this to be edible or not? <laughs> but we make trays full of lasagna. We make pots full of spaghetti or whatever it might be, uh, stews and, and stuff. And then we freeze them in vacuum sealed bags and we bring them with. And that's a lot of times that's what we're eating on the road. So you, you can save a lot of cost. And, and I have, I've experienced that firsthand. I've been the recipient of your wife's home cooking, uh, when we were in the field. So, oh, really? yeah, New Mexico, New Mexico, we had, I think we had like, wasn't it blacktail spaghetti and we had some lasagna oh, yeah. and yeah, we yeah. had we ate like Kings down there. And all you had to do is boil water and drop that vacuum sealed package in the thing of boiling water for five or eight minutes. And it warmed up and you, take it out and eat it. And it was just like yeah. having a home cooked meal. Yeah. So 
There, that kind of gets us to the the next question uh, that I kind of summarized from some of the comments was, what are ways for me to save costs so I can hunt elk every year? I think <laughs> you just touch some. Touch yeah. them. Right. Number one, hunt with your spouse. Uh, <laughs> add, add the hunting budget and the family vacation budget all into one. That's, <laughs> that doesn't really save you money, but it increases your budget. So it's one in the same, right? Yeah. Uh, I think Jay's going to get a couple hero biscuits for coming up with that idea. Oh, and people yeah. are going to be saying, can I get his email address? I want to figure out how we talked his wife into that. <laughs> uh, but no, I think that's one. If you're having to travel from, you know, some faraway place, splitting the cost with one or two other hunters, um, cuts that gas cost probably makes it easier so that you can drive and in a shorter period of time rotate out and you know i'll drive three hours you then three and then three and keep rotating and you can make really good time so you're less time away from work less time away from home based on just windshield time yeah Uh, don't like you said I, i and part of this is i assume that if people are asking this question like you said they're hunters already so they probably have what it takes to deer hunt and i'm assuming they probably maybe maybe it's an incorrect assumption but i assume they have something like go hunt to or uh on x i mean as their navigation system out there in the field uh maybe at home i know if i was a whitetail hunter uh i would really have that because i'd want to know every little piece of land there is and who owned it and if I could get permission or whatever. So I'm, I'm assuming that some of the things that we use out here, they probably already have. <clears throat> yep. And, no, and I think, you um, know, when, when you look at it and break it down, we can, we can fill our, I was going to say our backpacks, we can fill the truck bed with gadgets and gear that we really don't yep. need. But yeah. They make it comfortable. They make it more comfortable. They might contribute uh, in different ways, but when you break it down, really, you need some clothing, uh, you need a backpack, you need some boots, and you need a weapon. And then, of course, your tent or sleeping bag and that. But like you said, most yeah. people, if you even camp, you know, backpack, even if you haven't been hunting before, a lot of times you're going to have a tent and a sleeping bag and, um, you know, boots and a backpack. And again, there, there's always money that can be spent to make things more comfortable and more efficient, but just to be able to go, don't get wrapped up in, I've got to have the yeah. latest, greatest. I've got to, you know, this guy sent me his checklist and he's got 70 items on it and I've got to get every one of them. Um, those are really the only things you need, you know, a water bottle to carry water in. And, you know, from there, I think, you know, some kind of water purification, uh, you mentioned on X, so having some kind of navigation. Um, but beyond that, I mean, we're talking elk calls, wind checker, stuff like that, that, you know, is pretty minimal in expense. So, yeah, but I mean, don't get me wrong. If you got a big budget and you want an excuse to go buy some stuff, (laughs) I've never discouraged anybody from, from buying cool stuff, uh, stuff that's probably going to, like you say, make you more comfortable and help you maybe not get uh, wore out as quick, but don't do that at the expense of actually going. Totally. Yeah. And that's where I was going with that. You'll be able to accumulate gear. If you go, you know, like Jay mentioned, he's planning on going every year. You can spend a a limited amount of your budget 
each year and just pick up one item as long as you have the mainstays to get you out there and back that's all you need and then like you mentioned there there's things that you can pick up to make you more comfortable and there there are some things that i think truly do add to your success rates uh, that come from gear but just to get you out there and to have a chance of being successful no you don't you don't need to spend much on anything that you don't already have I think we're going to have to title this episode the Dime Store. <laughs> well, that's how most of us started out. I mean, that's, I can remember my, I, I remember getting my first set of Sitka gear in 2006. And it was, you know, I just, I, until then, I'd wore the cheapest $12 or $14 discount cotton sweatpant looking pants from walmart with a six or seven dollar camouflage t-shirt i mean i never had anything other than cotton and you know my boots i never had a pair of boots my first actual hunting boots were after i'd graduated college until then i wore shoes just tennis shoes and so i mean we we all (laughs) started on that shoestring budget as hunters and then you know as we uh recognize the value of of gear we've been able to add a little here and there and it's uh you know, I, I still, people say, you know, well, you guys have all this fancy high-tech gear and everything, and I still am just fine in my plaid uh, flannel and my wool pants and old pair of boots that I've had for logging for the last 15 years. And, yeah, yeah, you can. So don't don't ever let gear be the limiting factor to go on an elk hunt. That should be the last last concern, I think. Yeah, I mean, somehow I managed to still go hunting when my wife and I were freshly out of college with a baby to feed and student loans and all that stuff. I I just took what I had and I made it work. And uh, and if I would have spent at that time in my hunting days or that time in my marriage, if I would have spent on hunting what I spend today. I wouldn't be able to give marriage <laughs> advice because it would have only lasted about 15 months instead of 30 some years. Well, keep in <laughs> mind your marriage advice is worth about what people pay to get it. So that's, that's you know, right. yeah. not saying that because you didn't that's spend true. money back then you're qualified to give marriage advice. It's just, you would be in a different situation had you spent that money back then. Yeah. Point being, we all were there as we've gotten, you know, older and our finances are a little more comfortable. We're able to allocate more to that. But I don't think you or I ever stayed home from hunting because, oh, gee, I didn't, I don't have a new bow this year. Or, I didn't get a new pair of binoculars or, gee, look, I, these boots aren't the brand new boots. How, how am I going to go hunting? I, I don't think we ever let that get in our way nope not at all so saving money i mean that's honestly we talked if you were just going to go so i I guess just looking shoestring budget here if you've got all those basics that we talked about uh, and you don't need to to spend anything on that really it comes down to gas groceries and your license and tag and so if we're looking say 600 bucks for Idaho, or we'll just round up and say $700. And you aren't looking long term, you just want to go on an elk hunt. $700, depending on where you're coming from, your gas is going to be anywhere from $100 to $300 round trip, which if you bring a buddy, you can split that. And that makes it even lower priced. And groceries, if you make all your food at home and 
freeze dried it, freezed it, you know, whatever you do. I mean, you realistically can go on an elk hunt for under a thousand dollars. Right. Plus, if you're lucky, you're going to come home with about, I don't know how many, if you had to go buy that elk meat or the equivalent of it down at the grocery store. I'm not, I'm not, I'm never foolish enough to try justify hunting from an economic standpoint. But the point is, you're doing this, you're taking time out of your, your family time, your work time, whatever it might be. But if you're lucky, in addition to the great memories and the good exercise and the experience, for that $1,000, you're bringing something home that you're going to get to yep. eat on most of the winter. Totally. So. Yeah. So I guess maybe we should, uh, this, this podcast should have two titles this episode. We need the shoestring budget, and then uh, this is the year to go elk hunting. So make 2020 the year you go, and don't make any more excuses, no, no yeah. reasons to hold back plan your vacation now and start budgeting and go hunting this 2020 fall of 2020 yep if you don't go elk hunting this year in 2020 it's not because you couldn't it's because someone made a conscious decision not to i don't know is in today's world is a thousand dollars out of hand I don't think so. You start now, you have 10 months, that's a hundred dollars a month. That's, I mean, I think most of us could go out and find a job shoveling snow or raking leaves or doing something to, to make a hundred dollars in a month, just on a Saturday afternoon. Yeah. My wife claims that she could go sell all of my junk that's in the shop for far more than that. And she's right. I don't think you can give it to me. That's another option as well. You know, what do you have that you can sell? Don't sell any of your hunting gear because you'll have to replace that. But sell your golf club. There you go. Yeah. If you can afford to golf, you can afford to elk hunt just about anywhere. (laughs) Now all the golfers are going to. Send an irate message. All right. I think we've covered those first two questions. So, Jay, thanks for sending that one. I think it's very applicable to a lot of people, Um, even if their spouse doesn't tag along with them. Uh, But I think the points Corey brought up is the other parts of the hunt aren't that big of a a hit to the household budget where even if your spouse doesn't, go along uh you can probably still get it done for under a thousand bucks yep. so all right since you're the calling expert Corey, a couple of these questions related to uh kind of the there were some comments about do elk call in october and november uh is it worth my time to bugle should i even carry a call blah 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 Post rut, which is sometime the last half of October, and then late season being, you know, mostly November and December. Do you carry a call with you or not? Always. Yeah, I never, Always. I never go elk hunting without calls. So okay. that's, I mean, so that answers your only question. Yeah, and I, I think to elaborate on that, you know, September obviously is a time we think of. That's when you need calls, and we get yep. a lot of questions. You know, just either through the podcast or through Elk 101, and I know you get a lot of them as well, but is it worth carrying an elk call in rifle season, which now we're talking usually October, November? And yes, absolutely. So case in point, uh, this year, 
early September was great calling. By the last week or so of September here in Idaho, the elk weren't talking much. I mean, this is very generalized because just in the area we were hunting, they were very uh, non-vocal. And I think a lot of it had to do with uh, three weeks of hunting pressure already, in addition to the big storm that hit that last part of September. It just shut them down, and we had troubles getting them to talk. Uh, but then about a week later, I noticed the elk started firing up again, which got me excited because my youngest son had a, a rifle tag here in Idaho. And mm -hmm. I kept tabs on that herd of elk pretty much, I wouldn't say every day, two or three times a week leading up to rifle season and including the night before. And there were two herds of elk that came off the mountain every day heading down to the private land in the bottom where they'd go in water and spend the night rutting. And then they'd come back up in bed uh, behind the private land the next morning. And they were like clockwork, but they were so incredibly vocal trying to keep those two herds separated. And yeah, opening really? morning, which is August 15th here, uh, October, October 15th. 15th. Yep. They were screaming. And, you know, it was like September. We didn't even have to bugle. We just followed the bugles and got in position. And obviously I can't, I can't wow. not use the bugle. So I was calling, but like, we didn't have to. That, that was a point I wanted to make is we didn't have to. <laughs> so, uh, a week later, uh, I want to say it was a 20th, I don't remember what day exactly of the week the season opened, but it was about a week later, I took my oldest son out, and we literally stopped along the road and bugled, and the bull answered up on top of the mountain, and we were able to drive partway up the mountain and then unload the bikes and get in on them, but as we were going in there, uh, we got off, we actually bumped some elk in the road, and so we got off the bikes and walked up to the point, and an elk bugled down over the hill, and we ended up calling and probably had 20 or 25 bugles that morning from, I would guess, two or three different wow. bulls. Um, so you're talking like October 20th? Yeah, somewhere in the, in the 20th. Um, last year, we called in his elk. It came in fired up on October 28th. Um, so it's, you know, you aren't going to go out like in September and bugle off every ridge and expect to get an answer or find fresh sign and bugle and expect to get an answer. But there are elk that are still bugling. If you can get into those areas where they're not as pressured or you get into an area where they have been pressured and now two herds have come together and the bulls are trying to keep them separated, um, they'll be vocal. And, you know, I, I certainly wouldn't count on calling an elk in during those seasons. But if you can get one just to respond, you know, there's one there and that's what I learned this year hunting Montana in November. That's that's 99% of the battle is just finding the elk. And if you have a bugle to do it with, that's yeah. that makes rifle hunting a whole lot easier. So I wouldn't go around bugling from every ridge and, you know, just obviously keep in mind you're hunting in a season where there's a lot more people and they carry rifles and you don't want to attract their attention. Um, if you get in a place that looks pretty elky and you know, there's elk in there. I, I would certainly suggest throwing out a location bugle and trying to get a response. Yeah. Well, I always carry a diaphragm call with me in case the bull's moving off because something happened, you know, trying to get, get them stopped. Even in October and, and even in November, I've seen them stop to look when you make that cow call. Um, so I try to always have a yep. diaphragm with me. Uh, the bull I shot this year in November <laughs> in Montana, it was November, what, 9th, I think, 8th. Yeah. He was bugling. 
and he was jousting with another five by five. And, uh, that's the second time now in November I've had full on just crazy bugling. And one time was in Wyoming. And now this time, Hey, you think about how much pressure there is on elk in Montana. The first week of rifle season, we were in there the second week of rifle season and, the cow obviously was in cycle, and that was enough to get this guy throw a caution to the wind, and it turned out to be his demise. But uh, I, like you, I would have never walked around bugling <laughs> that day. But uh, well, and <laughs> the fact that he's anybody that watched our our day by day series, they saw me. I, I bugled just about every day, even though you know, yeah, really? it, you know, it was usually one bugle. Just we get up to this phenomenal looking ridge and knew that it would reach a long ways and thought hey, by chance you know there might be one of those really dumb bulls like the ones randy shoots that still bugles in november and <laughs> I, we couldn't even find one of those dumb bulls but we uh yeah I, I just i think there's always a chance for a vocal animal and if you can just elicit a response out of them that that's 90 percent of the battle in rifle hunting is just finding the elk so if you can uh especially yeah. if you're hunting heavy timbered stuff and you can't glass or your glassing is very limited a bugle at least tells you hey there's an elk there and from there it's you know the hunts the hunts on so some of the earlier rifle seasons in colorado and in new mexico start october 10th 12th something like that and you said what uh, october 15th is mm-hmm. when it starts in idaho yep so it wouldn't be a waste of time then to at least experiment and see, hey, is anyone willing yeah, to you, listen? Yeah, you go to like a private ranch that doesn't get a lot of pressure or Yellowstone or somewhere like that, and the elk will bugle all the way up till the 1st of November pretty consistently. They, they definitely taper off and the big bulls start moving away. They know the main show is over, but you'll hear bugles. I would, I guess I wouldn't go as far as to say consistently, but it would not be at all odd to hear bugles up till the 1st of November. I think what changes their habits is the rifle season starting. And so the you know, first day or first three yeah. days of rifle season in any state, I think you have a very real uh, chance of hearing elk bugle just because they haven't been pressured. Once they start hearing those gunshots go off, that's what kind of sends them into running and wises them up pretty quickly. But I, uh, I'd say, yeah. All the way through October, so if you're hunting the first couple of days of a rifle season, I think you have a chance of hearing bugles. So this year, 2020, I've got three Colorado elk points. I'm thinking of burning them, just not because I'm going to get a great, you know, glory unit out of three points, but I could get a first season tag that has fewer hunters in the woods, which makes, in my mind, a higher yeah. quality experience. I think this year it starts October 12th. I could be wrong on that. Somewhere plus or minus a day or two from there. So following Corey's advice, I would be remiss to leave my bugle back in the truck. Are there any seasons in Colorado from the time archery ends until that October 12th? Some of the units have what's called early rifle that starts October 1st, but most of these areas that I could get a tag for with three points do not. Yeah, I would almost say 
it's better to have that week or two week period between archery ending and that first rifle season starting. The elk settle down, there aren't as many people in the woods. And I, I would think you'd have as good of a chance of getting one to bugle on October 12th on opening day of that season in a lot of places as you would, you know, the last week of archery season. Hmm. All right. Well, come October, I'm going to report back to you. <laughs> well, only if what it happened? worked. If it doesn't work, let's just forget we had this conversation. <laughs> so we'd be we'd be leaving the audience uh, hanging out there if we didn't tell them where they could save money That's on Rocky right. Mountain hunting yep. calls. Correct. So they can just go to promo code Elta. Yeah. Any anywhere you go, if you just try the promo code Elk Talk, if it doesn't work, you know that's don't don't talk to us. But I, anybody mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, they uh, it should work. So yeah, Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls, you can save. What is yeah. it, fifteen percent? Yeah, pretty substantial discount. Yeah, I think so, so just use promo code Elk Talk and save on Elk Calls and use them in October and November. Yeah. And I, I guess to, to wrap that point up, the, the summary of it is there's nothing to lose by it, just being out there and giving it your yeah. effort with some calling. Yeah. And maybe your buddy will, you know, give you a, a, a bit of raspberries or something, <laughs> you know, and give you the hard time. Oh, you didn't call one in. Well, guess what? It's, it's October 28th. Yeah. That's why I didn't no, call one again, in. And that, that would be my point to make is don't expect to hear calls don't expect to call elk in but also don't discount the fact that you can still get an answer and that that one time you get an answer you know for us the last two seasons we've shot three elk during rifle season with a rifle and all three of those elk were bugling and bugling fairly aggressively anywhere from october 15th through october 28th in fact going back two years before that what's happening these these were general unit public over land the counter tags. Yep. Also, in right? fact, going back even uh, four years ago, Isaac shot a bull on October I think twenty third or twenty fourth, and there were two or three bulls screaming that morning, um, going in there. And again, I think that the that what art or what rifle season creates is a lot of pressure in a lot of areas, and it ends up concentrating the elk in those places where they're more safe and when you get those elk coming in there you know a bull's got his six cows another bull's got his 12 cows they come in there the cows are wanting to mix i mean they don't it's not like they want to stay in their separate little herds but the bulls want them separated and so those bulls a lot of times get very yeah. vocal and very agitated trying to keep their cows away from another bull and it's not uncommon at all to have rifle season actually generate some of that vocal behavior from the elk hmm well, hopefully that covers the question that was asked. The answer is yes to all of them. Every call, yes, call. Uh, yes, use your diaphragm. Yes, yes. I guess just yes. Any question you have about elk calls, is the answer is yes. Because oh, I, yes. Yes. <laughs> and if someone leaves a note yes. on your truck that says you call too much, yes, ask yes, Corey I for do. what call your too response much. should be. <laughs> uh, all right i'm, I'm going to try to summarize a whole bunch of questions here into one question that has a few parts to it uh a lot of people are asking questions about when you're planning your hunt of where you're actually going to start your hunting each day or 
the first day, whatever. What is the number one or top priority that you consider when doing a hunt in? I, I put these four seasons down, Corey, because there were a mingling of questions among all of these four seasons. So I, I, I can't say this is the precise question that was asked, but I think if we cover it, uh, it'll answer the questions people were getting at. So pre-rut, if we say that somewhere early September, you know, there's not hard dates to any of this. Um, peak rut from mid-September to early October, post-rut, you know, mid-October to the end of October and late season, and if we consider that November and December, what is the top priority you have when you are planning a hunt during one of these periods? And how about we break it up where you answer the pre-rut, peak rut priorities and I'll answer the post-rut late season priorities. Okay. And what is it exactly that we're looking for? Like, this isn't scouting. This isn't picking a unit. This is actually we're we're yeah. in the unit. Yeah, and I I, I don't want to throw a dart at the map and just randomly go. What determines where you're going to go? Uh, the, the and even though I, quite a, a couple of the questions said, I know there's a lot of factors that go into this, but if you had to pick one, what is the factor you give the most weight to? Maybe well, that's, that's easy. I, I go where the elk are. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Let number me, one every time. Uh, that's that. Next question. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> where? What? Where are what the elk? Factor then? Do you weight most heavily in determining where you <laughs> think the elk will be? How's that's that? a lot more complicated. I like the okay. I like the simplicity of the first. Uh-huh. <laughs> go where the elk are <laughs> yeah so i guess you know pre-rut i'm um, looking at that and i would go back pre-rut probably goes all the way back to august 15th because i think nevada and utah a couple other places actually have elk seasons that open mid uh, mid-august so i think you know we you've talked a bunch about you've got to realize what the needs of the elk are what's what's the priority that the elk need during that season and i would say that that first uh, portion, well, probably the entire pre-rut period, that whole latter half of August into the first four or five days of September, the need is on feed and water. And if you're hunting an area, any of the states that get hot temperature, climate, your your priority is going to be water. And those elk have to come into water every day, sometimes multiple times a day. Um, so finding the water sources is is going to be key. You get into a place like Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, a lot of times there's plenty of water everywhere. And so that doesn't really concentrate the elk, especially on a year where they've had a wet spring or you know more of a mild summer. You aren't going to find elk necessarily concentrated around water. So then it becomes the, the feed source. Um, so I, I guess just having an understanding, you know, the nice thing about that pre-rut is they're usually still in their summer pattern. Uh, So you have all summer to figure them out, to be out there scouting, uh, if you're able to scout and get an idea of where they're at. Uh, It's probably the easiest time to pattern an elk, I think, during that because they really aren't 
changing too much. A lot of times that's about the time the bulls, especially the bigger bulls, start leaving the bachelor herds and they go to what I call their, you know, their staging grounds areas where they wait for two or three weeks. Just they're by themselves. They're getting irritable. They they don't want company, um, but they're not ready to go hang out with the cows yet either. And so finding those little areas and knowing those areas from year to year and and I always put a pin on my Onyx when I'm during season out hiking and find one of those little bull bedrooms where that bull just lives for three or four weeks during the pre-rut. Uh, and really what I'm looking for is just a, a massive amount of rubs. And if you get into an area where there's a rub here and 50 yards up the trail, there's another rub here. And, you know, 100 yards down on the hillside, there's another rub. That's that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking every tree within you know, 60 yards is rubbed. That's where that bull went right when he started shedding his velvet. That's when they start getting irritable. They leave the the other bulls and they hang out in that tiny little patch where there's just, you know, water close by. They've got feed right there. It's usually on a north face, kind of a thicker area. And literally there's there could be 50 or 60 rubs right there close by. Um, so I, I'm always paying attention for that because even that first week of September, a lot of times you'll find, and, and a lot of times it's the bigger bulls that you find in those areas. And so if you are targeting a bigger bull that first week of September, which I still consider to be the pre-rut, um, that's, mm-hmm. that's certainly what I'm looking for. So if I am boots on the ground or even during season, I'm always paying attention for that, uh, for the benefit of, of going back there pre-rut the next year. So you you think and I kind of have my thoughts on this. My answer, I'll say the answer to my question before I ask the question is I think the answer will be yes to this. Is that bulls find these spots and they use it year after year that first late part of August, first part of September. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that we found it in Montana in November this year. You know, there's several places we went that we'd get in there and it's just this little bench on a north face that was just littered with rubs, so many rubs. And, you know, you, you just can't confuse it for, oh, there's been a bull in here during the rut. No, these are the the pre-rut rubs. And we'll yeah. get into it. You know, you sometimes get into a meadow and there's three or four rubs around the edge of the meadow or even five or six rubs around there where a bull spent a week or two during the rut and every morning he goes and tears up a tree. That's different. When they're in these pre-rut areas, sometimes they'll tear up four or five trees a day, you know, different trees, just getting the velvet off, scratching the, the itch of their antlers there on the tree. But, you know, that's also the time when the bulls are building up their neck muscles. You look at a bull and his neck on, on August 10th, and then you look at it again on September 10th, he's a different animal. And yeah. that neck is swollen, and he's really built those muscles to be able to fight and, and defend his harem with his strong neck muscles, you just think about a thousand pounds of brute force and antlers coming at you. You've got to have a strong neck. Yeah. Well, it's incredible to see the transformation that takes place in in their bulking up. And then by the time the late rifle seasons come, how withered they are. I, I don't know how they survive. Yep. It's amazing. Yeah, they go into winter without much fat. I think their fat reserves are to keep them from burning through too much of their muscle reserves in September because they just, they don't eat. Those bulls are, yeah, they don't stop and eat. They're continually running. Their adrenaline is pinned the whole time. And, you know, their metabolism is incredibly high for that month of September. Yeah. 
So next on the calendar then would be peak rut. Anything, it, it seems that these bulls are probably a little bit more mobile across the landscape. Searching for cows, is there anything that is your number one thing you look for of all of all the things you look for? Yep. Is there one that stands out among all the rest? Uh, number one for me is a bugle. So that's, I mean, and that's okay. <laughs> it's funny or as simple as yep. it sounds. That's all I'm looking for in September is a bugle. And, you know, we'll cover miles. Yep. And obviously we have to know what we're looking for, where we're going to find the highest uh, chance of hearing a bugle. And there's a lot of factors that go into that, but that's really how I would boil it down and say, I want to call in an elk. I've got to find an elk that's bugling. And so we're, we're literally looking for bugles. With that being said, hunting Roosevelt elk this year, uh, one of the things that uh, I've put some weight in it before with Rocky Mountain elk, but never as much as, as what we were able to with Roosevelt's is looking for rubs and it's not the it's not the pre-rut rubs now it's it's the rut rubs but those bulls will travel and rocky mountains travel too looking for cows but the roosevelts are very patternable in their travels and it's almost straight line so we'd get on a mountain and there'd be a road that would you know zigzag and switch back its way up the mountain and we'd come to these rubs along the road and so we'd get out and mark it on on x and then we'd go up the roadways and all of a sudden there were more rubs so we'd mark them we get to the top of the mountain and it was almost a perfectly straight line from the bottom of the mountain to the top of the mountain or wherever we were where this same bull walks the mountain and just happens to cross the road and where they cross the road there's you know they can actually breathe and rub their antlers on a tree instead of just thrashing it through the brush trying to get through the brush but it uh it was very uh, it, it definitely opened my eyes to the differences in Roosevelt and Rockies in their habits and just how patternable their rub. It's almost like a whitetail scrape line. These rub lines are the Roosevelt's. And, you know, if you find a rub along a road, it's there's a good chance you're going to get a bugle response somewhere along that rub line if you can track down where the bull's at right then. So um, we went back day after day oh. to these same rub lines and would bugle off of the ridge that would access a lot of that rub line. And almost without fail, we were able to, to get an answer from an elk. Hmm. Well, uh, kind of related to that is when you came up to Montana a few years ago and we archery hunted mm-hmm. together, okay. some people said, hey, it, it looks like you guys weren't way back in the middle of nowhere. And my answer is, no, we weren't. I, I follow Corey's lead that more important than anything is a bugling bull it it doesn't matter if it's near a logging road near a trailhead down low up high uh i don't put a lot of focus on the remoteness or the you know what we call sanctuaries in peak rut because these elk are just moving wherever the cows are and they don't have it in their head that someone's shooting at me with a rifle yet. So they really don't, they haven't developed that sanctuary instinct. So I, my point is to that is in the peak rut, don't think you got to walk eight miles back there because you might've walked past a lot of elk yep. getting there. Absolutely. No, and that's, you know, I, th- I think being remote brings benefits. I think you're going to find less pressured elk, Generally speaking, the the farther back you get, uh, 
They might be, depending on the area and, and a lot of other factors, they might be more apt to be vocal um, because they're not pressured as much. And so if you are looking for bugles, the more remote you get, the, the better chance that a bull is going to bugle. Whereas, you know, if you're hunting close to the, the front country, if you're hunting off of a road, um, they're listening to ATVs go by, they're listening to all that, and they just might lay there and not bugle. And if you're trying to get an elk to bugle, yeah. that's that's not a good problem. So, um, but yeah, I, I definitely, I I never, I never walk away from the truck without bugling because I don't want to get four miles back in there and realize there was a bull bugling a hundred yards from the truck. You know, I'll, I start my bugling the second we leave, and <laughs> sometimes we get an answer there. And tell you what, I would much rather pack an elk 400 yards to the truck than four miles to the truck. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, my answer to post rut in late season are going to be somewhat the similar, somewhat similar responses, but with variations to them. Uh, I'm going to say post rut is once rifle season start in September and it doesn't matter what date you want to put on it. September 15th or 20th, whatever. Um, yeah, did I say September? You I did. meant October. Yep. October, okay. All right. See, I told you I didn't have enough <laughs> coffee today. But anyhow, yeah, I'm talking anytime the rifle season starts in October is what I count as post-rod. And people hear me talk about sanctuary areas once the shooting starts, and I think that's the first thing I look for, but not all of them are created equal. Uh, these post rut ones in October, those are going to be higher up the mountain or further away from the road. Uh, this bull is probably going to be in solitary mode. They're not in bachelor groups yet, usually. And so he's just looking for a little place away from everything, probably closer to the summer range than the winter range. So I, I look at summer range, transition range, winter range. And in hunting seasons, most of the time these elk are on the transition range they're not all the way up on the summer range and they're usually not all the way at least the bulls not all the way down on the winter range so in that band of transition range normally the sanctuaries that i look for in the post rut of late october is going to be stuff that's closer to the summer range and it might be distance, it might be topography. It it doesn't take much of a pocket for a bull to say, you know what? For some reason, hunters don't come here, and I like <laughs> hanging out here. And so I, I look for that. And then I also look at, is it a place that I can approach to get a shot? Because having a, an elk in a place that's just nothing but a huge expanse of dark timber in October, late October is a tough proposition. Um, there are elk in that dark timber that is a sanctuary of some sort, but it's not a sanctuary I'm going to spend a lot of time in because I'm never probably going to see them. And if I do, all I'm going to hear is the thunder of hooves running away. Uh, I'm looking for places where some topography or some openings in the canopy give me an opportunity to get a shot when I find one. Uh, but these are going to be higher up the, up the mountain or farther away from the, the roadhead. Or in some of the places where they use canyons as uh, their sanctuaries, these are probably going to be the deeper parts of canyons where they aren't just off the lip. They're way down in there. And 
<laughs> You're not going to want to haul one out of there. It's amazing how elk hunting's like that. And then lately, it seems like where you find most of them, you don't want to haul them out of there. Yeah, it is. Right. And then the late season, I'll say this is probably November 1st and later. Um, these sanctuary areas that I'm looking for are closer to the winter range. Uh, they're further down the transition range. If it's canyon country, these might be uh, sanctuaries that are further up the canyon because they're coming up out of those canyons every night to feed where the good feed is. They just got to start restoring body fat. Um, so uh, for both of those periods, I'm looking at sanctuaries, but they're not all the same. And also these bulls are probably in bachelor groups. And so they're they're looking for areas where four, five, six, eight bulls can make a living in one spot. Uh, and people will say, well, what's that look like on a map? Well, over time, you got to learn how to read a map. I, the amount of time I spend on my Onyx desktop is crazy. I hope Onyx never puts a like a time meter on <laughs> on my desktop. Or a time limit. Yeah, because I'm going to be timed out. No doubt. Um, but you just, it takes time of looking at satellite imagery, learning how to read topo lines, stuff like that. And eventually you, yeah. you kind of get a feel for it. Um, so those are the things I'm looking for. Um, I don't know if that answers the questions of these people who, yeah, I got a sense that they felt that this was a huge, vast landscape. And there's a million things that could convince somebody that, hey, they should be here. Um, and I think they're looking for, how do I yeah. narrow that down further? So I, I take this unit that's 5,000 square miles and I can cut it down to 5,000 acres or something. No, and I think so. I definitely had the easier part of that question because with the pre-rut and peak rut, I think it is easier to find the elk. I think once they go into that sanctuary mode, mm -hmm. you know, during your your prime time of post rut and late season, uh, it's tough to find elk sometimes. And we we saw that firsthand in Montana this year. And there were a lot of comments. People said, "Yeah, Corey and Donnie went on their own for two days and didn't see an elk." And then the first day that they went and teamed up with Randy, Randy had them on elk immediately. And so I think there is a there's definitely a a skill in knowing where to find elk during different times of the year. And it's not at all the same from season to season. I think I would say whoever made those comments, I would equate that to luck or good or bad. I don't know. It was, it was every day that we, that, I mean, we shot elk every day that we were in the area you were hunting. So that's uh, that's not luck. No, it's <laughs> again, I'll call that luck. <laughs> But uh, uh, you think about where we were at, how many people were there and didn't see an elk. Oh, we, yeah. We talked to people that, you know, on the yeah. roads and everything yeah. back there that hadn't even seen an elk, let alone had a shot at one. You know, and this is open country where you can glass them a long way away. And, yeah. So. But a ridge that is 900 vertical feet above yep. a trail, it serves as a sanctuary. Yep. And bulls will go bed on that. So what do you do? You climb up to other ridges where you can glass all these ridge tops and you find some elk. Yep. And the guys walking the trails down at the bottom are looking at their boot tips as they're walking through the snow. I'm like, hmm, another hike today. 
And I, I don't mean that in a bad way. It's just over time you, you learn, experience tells you, okay, where are the places? You, you can almost tell within the first day, where's most the hunting pressure? Well, it's going to be down lower. It's along the trails. It's near the trailheads. You can see the human boot tracks. You can see other hunters on the landscape and see what they're doing. And then you, from that, you kind of say, all right, if that's where most of them are concentrated, the elk are going to be somewhere else. So just observing what those hunters have done or are doing has probably helped you eliminate two thirds of the, of the topography in that area. Yeah. Yep. And I think I approach it kind of as a mix of knowing the elk are going to be away from the crowds, but also knowing I have to cover a lot of country to find them. So I almost hunt them like archery season. The only difference is we don't get a bugle. So we're just hiking miles and miles, hoping to stumble upon a track or glass one up. And uh, you, yeah. you definitely have it dialed in pretty good because we wasted a lot of energy covering a lot of miles in areas that we probably shouldn't have wasted that time in. Yeah. Well, mostly I sent you to those places because it was a repayment for when you put that 12 pound rock in my pack. <laughs> in there were definitely people that caught onto that too. They're like, why is, is it as not obvious to you sitting there watching this as it is to us that Randy sent you someplace as a punishment and he's over where the elk are shooting them right now. That's, that does seem pretty obvious to the rest of us here. Uh, <laughs> uh, all right. Before the, the goods, the beans get spilled here, let's move on <laughs> to another question. Uh, I think this one applies to a lot of people. And again, I'm summarizing uh it, it's it, you and i both acknowledge that we're lucky that we get to hunt elk as much as we do uh we get to hunt weekdays rather than being relegated to weekends depending on what our calendar or the season dates fall but a lot of people listening and watching our content they they are the quote unquote weekend warrior they're, that's kind of what their schedule allows yeah um, and so I'm, I guess the question is if we had any ideas or tips for those who are relegated or, or can only hunt weekends, are there things that our experiences have, t have given us that would maybe make a better use of those two days that they have when, when they're out, whether, and I, whether it's archery season or rifle season or whatever, are there things that we have, have used or, and, and sometimes we got to hunt weekends also because of how the season dates yep. fall. Um, so we're out there with everybody else. Uh, hey, you got any I, I, feedback? You know, I think a couple, the couple thoughts season? there. First off, if you're only hunting weekends, you're probably more local to the area. And you aren't coming from yeah. Ohio and hunting in Colorado. You know, that's you aren't going to go there for a weekend hunt. Yeah. So I think that that's a benefit that you are more local. You're probably a resident of the state or close by, at least close enough that you can do some scouting in the summer. Um, so I think there, there are advantages there that you definitely need to take advantage of. Uh, you know, the, the hard part about only hunting two days at a time is sometimes it takes two days just to find the elk. 
and you know whether that's archery yeah. or rifle sometimes it literally takes a couple days just to dial in and say okay we're too low here or we're too high or there's no water here or you know whatever it is there's wolves here we need to re- relocate it'll take you a couple days kind of to get that dialed in and the problem is when you leave and head home on sunday and don't get back up there till late the next friday night it's a clean slate sometimes and it changes that much in a week that they might be completely out of the area again. So it really makes it difficult to, to have any consistency going from weekend to weekend. Uh, with that being said, um, I think having that experience year after year and learning it, you know, is vital. If you're brand new to an area and you're going in there and just weekend hunting, it's going to take you a couple of years probably to kind of learn it and, and, understand it i would if it was me and i had two days in a row to hunt i would be as mobile as possible i would hunt four different areas saturday morning saturday night sunday morning sunday night if that was your time to hunt i would be in four different areas unless i found elk and if i found elk i would be in those areas again and again until i had to go home um i think that's a lot of times people get locked in they go and they set up camp and they lay out their spread and they set up their wall tent and they put their stove in there and they're caught and they move everything in late Friday night. And then they hunt Saturday and Sunday and they get back and take down camp Sunday afternoon and head back home. And they hunted that one drainage where they set up camp because they had seen elk there last year or for whatever reason, and they didn't see anything. And they go the next weekend, they go back to the same place and, you know, leave camp set up or whatever. But I would say if you have two days in a row to hunt, be mobile. Don't ever get locked. In fact, I would hunt three different areas in a morning if I if I could and if I had to, just trying to find the fresh sign and get on elk because you just don't have that luxury of spending time finding them. You've got to find them immediately and then start hunting them. Yeah. I, as, as I was reading some of those questions, some thoughts were entering my mind of where I wish I had been a local who could have went out the weekend before season or two weekends before season, or I would have had some local intel that would have helped me. One time in New Mexico, uh, I had great plans only to find out that firewood cutting season opened in this area October 1st. <laughs> And that was when my son's elk tag started, or October 2nd, something like that. I can't remember. So I had great plans. And we go out there, and it's the buzz of chainsaws like you've never heard. I was like, hmm, all right, let's go someplace that's not open for firewood cutting. So a local, I mean, all the locals already knew that. So why did I think I had this place all to myself right at daylight? Because the locals knew Come about nine o'clock or eight o'clock, the woods is going to be full of yep. firewood cutters. Um, I've also went on out of state hunts where, in my mind, I'm like, "All right, this is it. This is where I'm going to set up shop." And I get there and it's dry. You know, there's not a a drop of water for four miles in any direction. So there are things that weekend warriors, if you want to call them that. Uh, have as their benefit where they can mitigate the risks of a complete strikeout by going out the week before or two weeks before and seeing what the water situation is or what the road closures are or things that are going to at least prevent you from showing up and having a complete blowout. Um, so there are, and, and I get that, I, I go back to your point of if they are hunting weekends, they probably are more local or regional yeah. at least. 
Um, and for me, because I, I focus so much of my stuff on rifle hunting. One thing that I, I look at the, the hunting pressure as a big driving force in rifle seasons. And so the hunting pressure on opening day. So if my week, my first weekend is an opening weekend, like in Montana, we always open on a Saturday. I don't know if other States are always that way. I have my plan for opening day. And then I have my plan for the rest of the season because the deck gets reshuffled after all the shooting opening day. I can also use that weekly cycle of hunting pressure where I know that by Sunday evening, when the weekend folks have been there, the elk are going to be as far back and as dormant and as hidden as any time during the week. And Monday, they think, oh man, maybe things have lightened up a little bit, Tuesday a little better. By Thursday and Friday, they're starting to feel a little more comfortable again because there's less pressure out there. There's still some. So that where I'm going to focus my effort on Saturday morning is going to be different than where I'm going to focus my effort the next, uh, that just a a day and a half later on Sunday afternoon. And like you said, they're going to be different areas. The other thing when uh, I was uh, hunting just weekends, I would do everything I could to clear my schedule and be out at the trailhead Friday night of where I thought was my best possibility. And I'd try not, if, if at all possible, I didn't want to be driving to the trailhead Saturday morning. Um, you can get there late, your plan can go awash. You can get there and find out, Oh, there's eight other guys at the trailhead. Or if you can get there Friday evening, it's going to give you a little bit better feel of how much hunting pressure is going to be here. You're going to get organized. You're going to see, what changes might have happened and you're going to be right there ready to go. And you're going to be way back there before the sun comes up Saturday morning. And again, I would be as mobile as possible. Um, I wouldn't hesitate to hunt one spot Saturday morning and a different spot Saturday afternoon and a different spot Sunday morning and a different spot. Yeah, Sunday and afternoon. even within that, I would say, you know, Saturday morning, I'm going to have three different spots that, are you know high likelihood i'm going to hear a bugle or see an elk that are within a mile of a road that i'm able to hike up from the truck get up on that ridge and bugle if it's archery season if i don't get a response i'm jogging back down to the truck driving four miles up the road to another spot hiking up to that ridge you know and by say i don't even know time frame wise it gets dark swirly right now but say it's getting light at you know 6 30 I'm going to be on that ridge at 6.30 bugling. And if I don't have anything, I'm going to be back at the truck by 7 and up to the next spot at 7.30 and, you know, up there bugling. And by 9 in the morning, I'm going to have hit three different spots and hopefully at least seen sign or heard a bugle and be hunting at that point. Because you just can't spend all day hiking in a a barren wasteland of elk and expect to have success in a two-day hunt. Yeah, I... I really, uh, I, the people who can pull it off doing weekend hunts and pull it off consistently, I, I have so much respect for them because it is a lot of work. You, you really got to hit it hard. You need to have your A game on and on what these elk do in response to hunting pressure, in response to weather, response to whatever. Those, those folks who can do yep. that are on top of their game. Absolutely. 
I, I guess another thing, at least as it relates to rifle seasons is, and this kind of goes back to my point of getting there Friday night is with hunting pressure, these elk are staying out for much shorter periods of time. Your windows of opportunity to find them up on their feet feeding are very short times in the morning and very short times in the evening. Do not be walking in in the morning, hunting your way in. Though That is not a time of the year to hunt your way in because by the time you get to where they most likely are, you're not going to see them because they're bedded up somewhere yeah. that they're just not visible. So, um, and don't go hunting with somebody who says, Oh, I got to be home by 11 o'clock. Somebody cleared the slate about that kind of stuff right away. Or you say, all right, try your own rig then. Yeah. Hey. No. And, and, you know, going back to, to, I think any season you're hunting, stay out all day. If you're, if you're a weekend guy, don't come back and take your three hour nap in the middle of the day at camp. Right. That's, uh, you know, elk will bugle all day long uh, in September. I think that you have a chance of, you know, if it's late season, you're out hiking ridges looking for tracks. You know, don't just sit on an open hillside and think, you know, my only chance is to glass them across on that hillside and have to sit here all day and hope they come out because, you know, they they might not. Yeah. Well, uh, we've received in our hunting absence if you want to call it that hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of questions and comments from the link out there on the website i i think we could spend most of the winter filling in our <laughs> our podcasts with these kind of questions or summarize totally coming up with ideas or, or at least reformulating bundles of questions to hopefully provide uh, as many answers as we can in an hour and a half. Yep. And one other topic that I think for my own personal selfish interest, I think we need to get Bo on here. Llama man? Llama man Bo. Okay. I, I just, it's, my my wheels are turning. Yeah. After, after hunting for a couple of days and seeing the llamas in action, I, I need more. I need more answers to some questions I have. Uh, the number of emails I get about llamas now that we've been using them the last three years, crazy. I, but yeah, I'll talk to the, you know, the hunt that you joined us on in Montana where Matt from Onyx and I shot my bulls. I don't know that we would have been shooting bulls that far back in without the benefit <laughs> of llamas. Well, first of all, we wouldn't have yeah. time. We would have shot one bull, and we would have spent the rest yeah. of the hunt hauling it out. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know that it's so much a matter of where they're at. I think that where I'm at now in life, <laughs> it doesn't make sense to shoot any elk without a llama. <laughs> <laughs> well, remember, that my 55th birthday while we were out there, Corey, so no matter where you're at, I'm further <laughs> out there in front of you in terms of my appeal for llamas <laughs> well if i start hunting with llamas now that makes me 10 years smarter than you yeah, not 10 years right. younger but 10 years smarter that's right well we already knew that uh, i just uh, you know there's so many applications and i just the more i think about it i think first off my kids want a pet <laughs> so that, that check you know that's 
that's one one reason. We could use some shed hunting and go back in and haul all of our gear back in shed hunting into these remote areas we go to. And then we try to figure out how to get elk antlers out of there. Now we hike our camp back in there. The llamas pack the antlers back out. And then, you know, just for hunting season alone, there was benefits. So I, hmm. it's, I'm almost to the point of justifying being interested in them. Really? Wow. I, yeah. I'm not a shed hunter, so that thought never entered my mind until you just said this. But think about grouse hunting. Think about the places you could go grouse hunting and load up those panniers with grouse. <laughs> or at least load it up with my camp and have virgin grouse that will just stand on the trail and let me thump them. Exactly. So that's what I call a good grouse. The one that doesn't flush, just stands there. Yeah. Yep. I'm in. All right. We'll get him on. So now I- I think we need to get him, and I'm going to have a whole list of questions that originate around how much does it really cost to buy one? How much does it cost to keep one? How much food do they eat? Um, are they considered a pet for family purposes? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I uh, I think that uh, we, get, we got a, a good topic on our hands then. Yep. Yeah. I do too. So you prime him, let him know that I'm coming at him okay. full assault with questions here. <laughs> and if anybody else, this is an open invitation. If anybody else has questions about llamas, send them in now, and then we'll uh, we'll bring them up when we get Bo on here. All right. Well, Corey, I appreciate uh, all the questions we've got here. I hope people continue to send them. They they really get me thinking. When I read those, and I read every one of them, we don't have time to respond to every one of them, uh, but I read them all. It really yep. gets me thinking about how the content of this podcast, but also the other content I produce, how to structure it, and what is valuable to people who are going to give their scarce time to listening or watching what we produce. Yep. Very helpful. Totally. And how can they leave questions again? Just go to elktalkpodcast.com. Yep. Just go there and there's a link to contact us and just fill out the form with your name and your question and hit submit and it makes it to to our email inbox somehow, the inner workings of the interweb. And it makes it to us and then comes full circle, hopefully at some point and makes it back in the form of... I was going to say, it makes it back in the form of a made-up answer, so... The, yeah. It definitely loses yeah. value along the way of the path that it takes, but it does come back to where it started. Someday, can you teach me how that works and teach me how to use Instagram? Uh, no. <laughs> okay. I'm only 10 years younger than you. You need somebody at least 30 years younger than you. Well, I, I have a bunch of 20-some early 30s that work for me, and they do all my Instagram stuff. Well, I have a firm in Minnesota that does most of it, but when we're out in the field, those guys are doing it. And they tell me, oh, we got to do an Instagram story. I'm like, what? What? I just say, tell me what to do. So if someone sees something really stupid on my Instagram, it's either ignorance because I tried to do it and I just plead ignorance. Or it's because my crew did it and they thought it would be funny for me to make a fool of myself. (laughs) Uh, hey do you have uh, a do you have a blurb from the rocky mountain elk foundation that we can share before we wrap up uh you know i i should well, um, can i share one if you don't 
Yes, if if you would, I there's one that they just did over in Oregon, and I got it here. Where did I put it? You go ahead. Okay. Well, I just we we talk a lot about um, access, and we talk a lot about. Um, different projects the Elk Foundation does, but one of the things that caught my eye in the latest issue of the Bugle magazine, which you receive as a member of the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, is research projects that they do. And this one was on researching uh, pregnancy rates in cows and how they can use satellite imagery from NASA to predict where the best uh, food sources and nutrition is, and use that to predict the pregnancy rates of cows. And so as I was looking into it, um, just on their website, they had a news release that they spent over, well, they just spent a million dollars in 2019 on elk research. And I thought, you know, that's, mm-hmm. a, that's a lot of member dollars going out to learn about elk and elk habitat and all that. But the really cool thing that caught my eye in it was uh, the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation allocated more than $1 million in funding to further elk-related scientific research in 2019. Those funds leveraged an additional $6.3 million in funding from other partners. So wow. we're, we're getting, you know, for every dollar of our membership, the Elk Foundation's turning it into six more dollars from other partners on the research side. And I know it's similar for access and other... Yep projects that they do as well that it's not our when we spend 35 dollars become a member of the elk foundation they're taking that money and not just putting that 35 dollars back on the ground they're taking it and turning it into 200 dollars and then putting it back on the ground yeah yeah the the amount of research that they fund uh right now with all the new emerging technology related to uh callers and tracking and real-time GPS data. The amount of information that can be done and gathered with far lower effort and cost than back in the day when you had the telemetry callers and someone had to fly over (laughs) or be nearby. Uh, It's incredible. And they're using that information. I'll use Wyoming, for example. Wyoming, uh, there's a researcher, uh, Dr. Middleton, uh, he's researching the elk that migrate towards Cody, uh, out of Yellowstone, towards Cody and other places in Wyoming, southeast out of the park. And he's using the, these GPS collars to identify these absolute critical corridors where these elk go through. And we're talking about part of the premier herds, part of the greatest stuff Wyoming has to offer for elk hunting. And if you say, okay, I can't go buy the entire corridor. I can't buy all the private land. How can I target my money and strategically use it and leverage it with these partners like you talk about to know that at least these critical corridors are not going to be disrupted? Um, so they're doing stuff like that, and that's in partnership with the Wyoming Migration Initiative. Um, there's this hoof disease issue in Washington and Oregon that they're funding. Um, there's fire research that they're funding. There, there's a bunch of studies being done on what's called riding the green wave. I stole that from somebody. Uh, it's really about how uh, ungulates are using the green up as it goes up the mountain in the springtime as the snow melts it's there's these green bands that are so critical to to the the cows and and the does that are either 
moving up there with their their lactating young ones or uh or their nursing young ones or they're moving up there and that's where they are going to fawn and calve um that kind of research is going to pay such huge dividends in the future that it's yeah your three your 35 dollars becomes 200 and a lot of 200 dollar leveraging and benefits can get a lot of work done that improve everything about wildlife and and elk and elk hunting and everything else so but so the the one i was thinking about the access project it wasn't in oregon that i just read about it was in washington um and i'm gonna pronounce this wrong cowish c-o-w-i-c-h-e that works um (laughs) and uh, i apologize for uh uh, hacking it up i'm not from washington so i i don't know but uh elk foundation worked with uh washington department of fish and wildlife u.s fish and wildlife service and pacific power um to add a bunch of acreage to the public domain that you know again they go and leverage this money they buy the critical corridor that provides access to much bigger chunks i think this one turns out to be 4,400 acres. Um, and it's, let's see, I'm, I pulled it up here. It's, there's over 2000 elk that use this general area. Um, and elk without access is, is you know, not yep. nearly as value valuable as elk where we have access. So it's, uh, yeah, the, the list goes on and on and on. But I'm glad you brought up the research stuff because that's another one of RMEF's huge priorities. Yeah, they've got habitat improvement. They've got public access. But they have research as one of their primary uh, focal points of, of their mission work. And there's there's plenty of research that needs to be funded that's beneficial. And for them being the catalyst that can bring yep. these other dollars together. Yeah. Is good for all of us. Yep. So go to rmef.org and become a member, right? No, and that's we've uh, we've pushed it for a long time, and I'll continue to push it for the rest of my life because our thirty-five dollars collectively banded together is done so much for so long, and will continue to do important things that will keep us in the field and keep elk in the field and make sure that that's this, this yeah. opportunity and privilege that we love is maintained as long as we can possibly maintain it. Yeah. And if you want to become one of the volunteers for RMEF, there's already 11,000 of them out there. Amazing people. You can go to rmef.org, type in your zip code and it'll tell you here's where you can volunteer yeah. to whether it's project whether it's a fundraiser whether it's whatever there is no shortage of things you can use your labor and talent for yep so well Corey, uh merry christmas to you and to all the listeners yeah. uh, even though they'll probably do this after christmas um we'll um i guess chime it up again after the holidays here and get back on a more normal schedule. Well, we're huh? just rolling right into application season again. It seems like we went straight from application season to prep season, <laughs> to hunting season, to post season. And now here we go again. So uh, uh, more, yeah. more content to come if, for sure. If, yeah. Is there one specific elk hunt that you are hoping for this year you know i honestly we we put so much effort into this season and then our destination elk video series that 
I haven't even wanted to start thinking about next season yet because, and and the reason I say that is not because I'm not excited for next season, but we have so many opportunities and so limited on time that we're able to do them that I'm just hoping to let the dust settle and kind of see where we end up. We just, the, the opportunities, I don't say opportunities like, Oh, so many different opportunities, but I'm just becoming more aware of so many cool places to try to go hunting. And then all of our normal stuff that we like to do, it's, we really just have to prioritize and choose just a couple because that's really all we have time to do. So it's a it's a bad problem to have. Yeah. That's a no. I'm I'm there with you. I this last year I took two of my uncles on Elkons, one in Wyoming, one in New Mexico. They both shot a bull, and, and it reminded me how much I enjoy helping others and spending time with dear family members and. And my son, Matthew, he he missed a lot of work with some illness earlier in the year, so he didn't even apply for any tags this year. He just applied for points. And it's the first year ever that we've not spent a hunting trip together. And uh, so for me, I'm looking to make up for that plus another one uh, just because I, I don't care if I pull a trigger or release an arrow. doesn't matter to me. I'm... I'm just wanting to go out to these cool places with people who mean a lot to me and make some memories. Yep. Totally. All right, folks. Thanks for listening. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. And we'll uh, catch you on the next episode.